This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Welcome to the Race to Value. This week's podcast will cover the topic of obesity and cardiometabolic disease disparities in rural America. A bright future for our nation depends on the health and prosperity of rural America. And unfortunately, we're at a moment in time where life is not ideal in the rural heartland. Although most rural Americans are generally satisfied with their overall quality of life and they see their communities as safe, We're reaching a crisis when it comes to financial insecurity, trouble accessing affordable, high-quality health care, a lack of high-speed internet access, housing problems, isolation, loneliness, and I can go on and on. And when it comes to health care, even though most rural Americans have health insurance, about one quarter say they lack health care access as they have not been able to get the care they need at some point in the last few years. Hospital closures are also problematic in these rural communities. One in 10 say that they've seen their hospitals close over these last few years, but most disconcerting, rural Americans are dying more frequently from preventable causes than their urban counterparts. Potentially preventable deaths from the five leading causes are consistently higher in rural counties, especially with heart disease. Nearly half of deaths from heart disease in rural counties are preventable compared to 18% in large metro areas. You know, Eric, these are such important challenges to overcome so that we can ensure health and prosperity in our country. The COVID-19 pandemic and current inflationary climate have only worsened outcomes for our most vulnerable populations, as rural communities are far less resilient to the effects of such large-scale exogenous shocks to the system in comparison to their urban counterparts. I'm really excited for today's podcast conversation because it'll shed light on what can be done and empower our listeners with important information on ways to address cardiovascular health disparities in rural underserved communities. Joining us in this important conversation is Dr. Jessica Barnes, the co-founder and CEO of 20 Lighter LLC. They're an award-winning cardiometabolic health program delivering dramatic reductions in inflammation and visceral fat. Dr. Barnes is an expert in cardiovascular metabolic disease and focused on research applications to improve population health outcomes. And joining her in this interview is Chip Purcell, the Director of Cardiology Research 
at the University of Arkansas Medical Sciences and the principal investigator of the Arkansas Lincoln Project. The Arkansas Lincoln Project is an important population health program focused on improving cardiovascular health in highly underserved, under-resourced areas of the Arkansas Delta region where economic and health disparities have life-altering consequences for residents. Daniel, these are two leaders truly making a difference in the Arkansas Delta, and there is so much potential here to replicate their population health model at scale across all of rural America. So how can that be done? Well, let's find out as we learn more from Dr. Jessica Barnes and Chip Purcell as they join us this week in the Race to Value. Jessica and Chip, welcome to the Race to Value. It's so great to have you on the podcast this week. Right. Glad to be here. Thanks so much for having us. Well, I thought a great way to begin our discussion today would be to frame up this problem that we have with cardiovascular health disparities in rural communities. Throughout our country, we have more than 46 million Americans living in rural areas, and those residents tend to be older and sicker than those living in urban areas. Rural Americans tend to have higher rates of cigarette smoking, hypertension, obesity, they report less leisure time and physical activity than their urban counterparts. There are also is higher rates of poverty, less access to health care, and they're less likely to have insurance. And as I was thinking about our discussion today, you know, I saw this report that came out a little while ago from NPR and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation called Life in Rural America. And it had some really startling statistics. You know, nearly half of rural Americans struggle to pay off an unexpected ex expense, four in 10 adults say their families have experienced problems with medical bills or housing or even buying food. About a quarter of rural Americans have problems accessing health care. quarter of rural Americans cite health care quality as an issue. You know, there's issues with access to high-speed internet. And, you know, one in five also have issues with stable housing. And, you know, Arkansas in particular, I know, is probably one of the more challenged areas in rural America. The U.S. News and World Report ranks Arkansas 50 out of 50 states for overall health care quality and population health outcomes that lead to higher than average obesity rates and overall preventable hospital admissions. So I wanted to ask you both if you could speak to some of the challenges that are facing rural communities, especially in Arkansas. And with so many public health challenges like social isolation, lack of health care access, mental health issues, poverty, premature, natural death, where does one even begin when trying to deliver models of care that improve population health outcomes? I'd love to hear your perspective on this and also how the Lincoln Project was born. It is very challenging. And, you know, I think that it's very sad that when people think about chronic health in America, the thing that comes to mind first is the urban and suburban populations. I think the reason that we, 20 Lighter, my company specifically felt that Arkansas was a place we really wanted to turn our attention to was because it was the worst of the worst. And that it felt to us like if there was a place that we could really make a difference, it would be in this area. And that would allow us to demonstrate that if we can make a difference there, we can make a difference anywhere. And I think in the experience that we've had working in the Arkansas Delta region in particular, so this is the 15 or so counties that border the Mississippi River on the eastern side of the state, our expertise really has been focused in on that southern area, one particular county, Phillips County. And all of the things that you mentioned are absolutely in play. One of the things that we found 
most startling wasn't on your list though. And it's a, a mistrust of the healthcare system. And that for us was, I don't want to say surprising, but it is very pervasive. And the way that we found a way to engage or to work around that was to, to build relationships with some community-based groups, literally nonprofits based in Phillips County, to establish that trust, to gain the credibility, and really to access those that were ready and open for change you have to start somewhere. I mean, that's that's what you're saying. It's such a huge issue. How do you even begin to make a difference? Well, you establish relationships and you describe what, what you do and what you offer. And then you let people that are ready engage. And by doing that, A, you build a trusting relationship with that next level of people beyond the community and the community nonprofit. And also you allow those folks to go out into the community and sort of show others what they're capable of doing through the progress that these individuals are making. And then you get the second wave of people that say, you know, if Mary can do it, maybe I can do it too. And it's a slow process, but it's the way that we've found that it, it actually turns more exponential than one-to-one. -one. So when Mary goes out in the population and to church and, and to the grocery store and to work and people see her feeling good and starting to really change her life, they think, well, gee, maybe I can do that too. And then the conversation starts and then you find people that think, well, gosh, then maybe I'd like to give that a try. And for us, that's been a successful way in the way that we can just start to generate a little bit of momentum to make a little bit of change that opens the door, hopefully in the future for a bigger impact. Thanks, Jess. I think that was a succinct description of the situation we face. And Eric, I'll give you the information on the Lincoln Project, and then that will kind of lead into how we go all about improving population health. So the Lincoln Project was born out of previous work that I did from studying the accuracy of death registration. And it began to become apparent that death registration data for clinical diagnoses as in cause of death was not very reliable. And we began to look at how do we identify areas that are in need. And the Lincoln Project approach is that we use out-of-hospital premature natural death, meaning death occurred out of the hospital. It was natural. We exclude cancer. And we have 18 to 74 age limit. And what this led us to was a proxy for need, let's call it that. And we took the information and we plotted it and mapped it and began to look at it in terms of, okay, this compared with, say, CDC income and other data, census data, and we begin to see a pattern with a need. We begin to see a lot of minority populations, obviously, that were, were underserved. And so we established the, the area. We begin to see some of the needs, but we didn't have a, a do. You know, what are we going to do about it? About it. In fact, I got that question from the dean of the College of Medicine when I made a presentation to him. You know, what do you, what do you, this is great. What are you going to do about it? So we looked to the literature and found kind of a fragmented approach from a lot of different people, or they were 
not specific to a population. They were more concerned with the disease state. A lot of the projects were simply trying to get a patient to a physician. And that's a wonderful thing, but very impractical, particularly in eastern Arkansas. Well, Chip, as you discussed, the Arkansas Lincoln Project was developed over the past decade as a novel engagement and intervention model that focuses on underserved low wealth communities with health outcome disparities that prevent the rebalancing of rural health equity. And as I understand you utilize geospatial mapping to identify the highest risk communities. This geospatial ap approach was inspired as I understand by the American Red Cross Fire Prevention Program, where they went door to door to replace smoke alarm batteries or install a smoke alarm at residents without one in communities with high levels of residential fires. And they found that they reduced those fires and in the deaths associated with them. Using a similar strategy, I know you wanted to see if you could look at premature natural death data and have that help you identify those highest risk neighborhoods to assess and address the needs of residents in each household of the target area. Can you describe a little bit about this geospatial mapping approach for our listeners? And in each geospatially identified high risk neighborhood, how do you engage them holistically You know, as you look to get these residents involved with the program? So I was in Washington presenting some findings to the American Red Cross Scientific Advisory Board a few years ago. The gentleman before me presented on their home fire prevention campaign. So they map home fires and then where there are high rate of home fires neighborhoods, they go door to door in every home in the neighborhood and make sure they have a working smoke detector. And that may just be replacing batteries in one, or it may be they install a new one. And as you can imagine, the incidence of home fires in those areas went down about 80%. Well, it occurred to me we can adapt this to communities or adapt it to health and wellness. And, you know, we don't have a little round white thing we can put on the wall to prevent heart disease, but... We have resources, as in community health workers. We have a tremendous amount of individual, tremendous number of individuals and groups that want to help. They just needed a vehicle. What we needed was engagement. We needed the path to people that need our help. And so the Lincoln Project started its initial pilot projects about two years ago, and the point was to identify a area, define it geographically. In this case, for the pilot project, we used the census block and deploy community health workers to knock on every door and offer enrollment to anybody that was older than 17 years. And what we had was a, a host of services, including Jess's program, that we could help people move from unhealthy to healthy. Obviously, what we were looking at was, was behavioral change. And as we begin to expand the program and as we begin to enroll patients, that goes back to your question about this huge, overwhelming need. Well, with the data that we have, we're beginning to see patterns. We're going to see actual needs in an actual yeah, that we can do something about.
Chip, Jessica, thank you for getting us started. I, I love the overview and appreciate the, the context that you've shared with us. And I want to dive deeper into this idea of regions, Chip, that you've brought up. And, and we know it's been said that one zip code is more important than one's genetic code when it comes to determining their health. And there's no better illustration of that than racial minorities living in rural areas. Despite improvements in cardiovascular disease or CVD management over the past 50 years, we've seen that disparities continue to disproportionately impact underserved low wealth communities driven by a complex web of social, cultural, and medical influences. The rural Arkansas Delta is a prime example of health inequities related to cardiovascular health. Phillips County in particular is an area where economic prosperity remains elusive due to struggles providing infrastructure, skilled workforce, quality of life, and good paying jobs that are needed to maintain and grow the local economy and enabling households to generate enough income to support their families. Overshadowing these economic challenges of this majority African-American community where greater than 35% of residents live in poverty are the devastating health disparities highlighted by the worst health factor and health outcome rankings of all 75 counties in the state and a CVD related death rate of citizens less than 75 years old that is twice that of the national average. On top of that, there's a significant history of racial discrimination and conflict, including the 1919 Elaine massacre, which is the bloodiest racial conflict in their history of the United States, and, and which certainly contributes to modern day persistence of SDOH barriers that contribute to health inequities. With all this context, how does the Lincoln Project engage minority and underserved communities to address health disparities that are ravaging the Arkansas Delta? And is there something that can be replicated by other researchers looking to address disparities or care in other parts of the state and beyond? Absolutely. And that's uh, an interesting question. So the engagement, and we look at the Lincoln Project as primarily an engagement platform. And we are lucky to have identified linguistically and culturally similar to those that we serve. And that is our conduit, human interface, if you will. And we are able to deploy them to the specific census block. They go door to door. And it's interesting that when it comes to asking questions about health issues, wellness issues, and obstacles, we get a clear picture of what it is for that census block. Now, it doesn't necessarily agree with the descriptive epidemiology that has been popular the last decade or so, but we're able to understand what are the needs of this group. Then that gives us a relatively clear picture of what we need to go out and find. And the engagement piece with the community health worker starts with a wellness app called the Health Science Index. And it's nothing more than a app that allows clients to input data. And it doesn't have to be day to day. It's kind of one survey and then you update it as you need to. And that produces a list of two or three things that the client needs to work on that day. It may be, there may be sleep, it may be exercise, it may be food. So what we have is a baseline to move people from unwell 
to wellness. And I look at it as kind of the first step in behavioral change. And once we have established that relationship, we have moved people on a path to wellness, then we begin to see what other needs are there. And they're not static. I mean, just because we resolve a maybe an issue with food, that doesn't mean there's not a transportation issue that shows up or other things that we're not aware of until we actually ask the questions and, and spend time with the client. Also, Daniel, I think it's interesting in, in talking about disparities in, in zip code versus genetic code, I think it's also important here to roll in the issues that we actually see in Phillips County and throughout the United States with respect to women in cardiovascular disease. It is really a very fast growing subset of the population that is uh, struggling with cardiovascular disease. And interestingly, if you look back at the large clinical trials that most of the cardiovascular pharmacological interventions are based on, they are predominantly in older men in urban and suburban populations. And what we see not only in Arkansas, but specifically in Phillips County, is that there's also inequity even in the inequitable areas. So we know that for women living in Phillips County, they have about a 12% lower medium income than men, and that they have about a 54% higher rate of poverty for women over the age of 15. So if you then layer that on top of all of the issues trying to access care and, and having ability to engage with a, a payer for coverage of medical expenses, it really can be overwhelming, especially when you're trying to decide, gee, am I gonna put food on the table and pay rent or how am I gonna manage these very high medical bills? And so there's also inequities in the inequities that are also very, I think, scary from the perspective of people that are, that are worried about, oh my gosh, my mom and dad have cardiovascular disease and have heart attacks. What am I gonna do? How am I gonna prevent having that same issue when I need to work for a living. I'm really interested in learning more about the population health strategy of the Lincoln Project. And, you know, I went to the website, you know, as I was thinking about this interview, and you describe your vision as follows. Ultimately, our vision is to introduce practical community-centered interventions that improve rural health. We partner with existing community leaders to engage patients through the creation and evaluation of community-centered intervention and prevention programs. By viewing communities as the cornerstone of well-being, we believe we can produce long-term change that goes beyond the local interventions. And I find that so inspiring. And all these interventions that are taking place at the community level within the Arkansas Lincoln Project, they're conducted by community health workers. You know, and this CHW-led neighborhood strategy bridges the gap between social resources, healthcare services, and the rural communities that are being served. So I wanted to ask you both, how does this door-to-door holistic engagement model work exactly, and what makes community health workers ideal for this type of engagement? Is there something that our value-minded listeners out there can listen and learn about? in terms of the effectiveness of layperson interventions when it comes to their own population health interventions? Great question. And absolutely, community health workers are the most underutilized resource that we have in healthcare right now. In their traditional form, they're employed by the hospital and they tend to get referred to a patient that maybe is non-compliant and has had some other attempts to 
uh, care for the patient and hadn't worked. We want them to be the face of healthcare. And if face of healthcare and with a baseline wellness program, I believe we will, we would be able to overcome a lot of the traditional mistrust of the healthcare system, mistrust of even physicians and hospitals, just because we'll have had either a bad experience or they have not been able to get care. And so I see the community health worker, particularly as we move into alternative payment methods, specifically capitation, that the community health worker will be the frontline person leading patients to more behavioral change, but done in a culturally sensitive way. And our community health workers generally come from the areas where they serve. So we automatically have a little bit of knowledge and insight and also access that it would take a long time for somebody to develop if they're bringing community health workers or other healthcare workers from outside the system. Well, so here at the Institute for Advancing Health Value, we believe the key enabler for the future of our industry is workforce readiness to deliver on the promise of the high value, high quality care that delivers equitable outcomes for all. And to that end, we've developed workforce development solutions that provide reskilling and upskilling to succeed in value-based care models including the deployment of effective population health interventions. The role of the community health worker is one that we consider to be crucial in the impact of social determinants of health that determine overall patient wellness. And I'm sure the Lincoln Project is focused on this too, as purposeful CHW recruitment and significant training is required to bring about a high level of success. Can you describe more about the Lincoln Project and how it identifies community health worker recruits and trains them to navigate both the medical and social resources available to improve health outcomes with these complex cases of cardiovascular disease? So the community health workers, as I said before, are recruited from the local community where possible or nearby. And we have our own in-house training. Uh, We developed it Uh, based on CDC community health worker training project that was, uh, I believe, developed four or five years ago. But we trained the community health workers on what's unique to the Lincoln Project. So once we have engaged the patient and uh, they're in the program, they have their wellness app, the next step is a social determinants evaluation. Right now we use Bertha or findhealth.org. And That allows us to do the assessment and then electronically link the clients to whatever resources that they need that that are in the community. And once the social needs are dealt with, or at least we have a plan to deal with them, then we begin to look at medical compliance or medical needs. And I get the question a lot, why is the Lincoln Project based in cardiology? Well, first, it's cardiology or cardiovascular disease is the ultimate lifestyle disease. So some number, more than 50% can be prevented. And the information that we have and the information that we gather allows us to understand what the client needs. So UAMS cardiology can deal with anything from a first diagnosis of prehypertension all the way to heart transplant. 
And you know, we have that, that information within the walls of the hospital, but with the Lincoln Project, it allows us to export that expertise where it can be used in the community. And the outcome changes that we are seeing, and again, preliminary pilot data, but we begin to see people that are more cognizant of the need to comply with what their physician is asking them to do, whether that be you know or maybe a slight diet change, and the, the trend improve for compliance, which you know obviously is a big step in behavioral change and a huge step in changing health outcomes. Well, I I love this discussion on the community health worker role, and I think it's going to become more and more widely recognized as an important lever in the creation of an effective population health program across the country. The data has been proving out in several different use cases that CHWs can really impact utilization outcomes. For example, there was a, a recent study published last year that showed the Massachusetts General Hospital was able to reduce 30-day readmissions among ACO patients supported by trained community health workers. And the study's community health workers received a month of training on core competencies such as motivational interviewing, goal setting, and psychosocial support and met with their intervention group of patients and inpatient teams prior to discharge. And I know at the Lincoln Project, you're using the community health worker role for activation of a portfolio of programs and resources to address and manage social and medical factors leading to cardiovascular disease and out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, or OHCA, as it's otherwise called. Can you describe on the Arkansas Lincoln Project how CHW staff are able to impact social and medical variables and key metrics, including health outcomes and target neighborhoods? And I know it's still early, but are there any conclusive results that you're seeing in the interim as, you know, in terms of utilization impacts and, you know, other measures that you'd like to share with our audience? I think that's a good question. And and as we know, uh, changing cardiovascular disease outcomes is a a longer-term goal than a measurable However, one thing we have gotten great cooperation out of our uh, collaborators is we get utilization information and compliance information on the back end. So we understand from findhelp.org, for example, if a patient has accessed the social services that they were referred to, how often they've accessed it, or maybe they didn't access it at all. And these are the interim measures and metrics that we are interested in in the short term. I was hoping today to be able to give you a some specifics, but we are still in the final stages of data collection from the pilot project. That will be out and be available in the next 60 days or so. So I can speak a little bit to that as well. First of all, I wanted to circle back and give a little bit of, of perspective, I think, on, on how I view the difference between medical staff and the community health workers. And I've had occasion to, to work pretty closely with some of the community health workers in the Lincoln Project. And what really struck me was that these individuals come from the community and they really care about their community members, the people that live around them. 
And that is really something that resonates with someone who is in that underserved area. I've been to the doctor and had some experiences where I've I felt more like a number than I did a patient going through the motions and in and out in, in a short period of time. And, and just the, the way that they interact, the way that they speak, the way that they look at you, you really get the sense that they care about their community and they know that the community, the future of the community really is significantly tied to the ability of the community to have good health moving forward because it, it impacts everything. It doesn't only impact health, it impacts their ability to go to work and to engage with their children and to provide a future that allows them to continue this rural lifestyle, which many of them have been living in for generations and generations. So I just wanted to make sure that I just highlighted that because it's really something that stood out to me and, and is really a wonderful aspect that's, I think, almost impossible to replicate in a more strict or starchy medical environment. So I can speak a little bit about the, the outcomes, the interim results that my company's program has experienced in the Arkansas Delta. And so over the first quarter of 2020, again, through introductions in the Lincoln Project and parallel to that with a community uh, nonprofit in Phillips County, we enrolled a small number of African-American women, eight in this particular cohort, to partake in our two-month program, all of these women had diagnosed hypertension, pre-hypertension, or some level of cardiovascular and, and metabolic health. And what we thought we would see baseline is about a 50% engagement. So if we had 50% adherence versus what we normally would expect over 60 days, we thought that would be good. Because again, the epidemiologists tell us that it's very difficult to engage this group and they're very reticent to really engage and they may not be necessarily ready for change. And that was exactly the opposite of the experience that we had. These women were motivated. They were grateful. They were so excited that people were engaging with them proactively and showing literally day to day that we cared about their health and their family's health and were willing to put in the time above and beyond what you would normally expect to, to have outcomes that were good for each of them. And what we know is that the engagement in the rural area versus urban and suburban was a little bit more high touch, but the adherence was far beyond what we expected. 83 to 80% engagement with the Bluetooth weigh-ins each day, every single day over the 60 days, and also every single day text messaging engagement through the HIPAA compliant mobile app really blew us away that level when we looked back over those 60 days uh, at the end of the pilot. Pairing with that, some significant improvements in medication reduction, visceral fat reduction, and clinical risk factors, modifiable clinical risk factors. In the literature, if you go and you look, there's so many reviews that talk about modifiable clinical risk factors are the most often overlooked and underappreciated ways to change the trajectory and the progression of cardiovascular disease in any population. And so for us, we were seeing BMIs from 31 to over 80 in this group of women and they all made clinically meaningful improvements with a number of them expressing an interest in actually redoing a program. 
There were a couple of them that actually attained the point where their hypertension meds were being discontinued, their diabetes medications were discontinued, and they felt comfortable in the range that they were at. And of course, someone with a BMI of 80 is going to have a, a bigger journey than someone with a BMI of 31 or 33. And Chip and I presented this data at the very beginning of the month at the American College of Cardiology Conference in Washington, D.C. And I think it just goes to show that if you do it the right way, if you approach this from a we, not you type of a strategy, and you show people that you care and you're willing to put in the work and you have a program that is effective, that there is going to be a group of people that will be able to make progress. Now, as we look beyond that, what we're seeing is that first cohort of eight, again, out in the community doing their thing, we now have a list of close to 55 people that have expressed an interest in what is this about? How do I get started? What did you do? And so I think that that type of initial experience allows us to go back to the key stakeholders and say, look, we are really knocking down some long held biases here. And what we need is the opportunity to put a bigger cohort together and build the momentum into the rest of the Delta and up through the interstate 20 and 40 regions where the cardiovascular disease horizon is pretty similar to what's going on in Phillips County. Jessica, I love hearing that success story and that vision that you paint of that progress. And, and I'd love to learn a little bit more about 20 Lighter, an award-winning cardiometabolic health program delivering dramatic reductions in inflammation and, and one of the things you mentioned, visceral fat. And I just I'd love to explore this a little deeper. And, and this type of the visceral fat that you mentioned, it's fat that sits around the organs in the chest and down into the abdomen, and it's really inflammatory. So visceral adiposity and abdominal obesity is tightly linked to the development of diabetes, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and cardiovascular disease. And it's also associated with the development of cancer. And most recently, it's been associated with morbidity and mortality from COVID-19. I'd love for you to share with us how the 20 lighter cardiometabolic health program works to help hypertensive and pre-diabetics reduce their visceral fat load? And how does it help more complex patients with later stages of disease make improvements in their health outcomes? Sure. So I'll break this up into two. Let, we'll talk about the program. So our program is a mobile health delivered healthcare provider overseeing two-month program. So people living any place, as long as they have cell phone or an internet connection, can participate. We've worked with individuals from 12 all the way up to 80, people with pre-diagnoses, so pre-hypertension, pre-diabetes, people with just a higher risk of developing things like cancer and cardiovascular disease that their doctors have said, you know, if you were to lose 15-ish pounds, your risk with your risk level would really significantly drop all the way to people that have previous heart attacks and atrial fibrillation and congestive heart failure and serious sleep apnea. And again, as I mentioned, BMI is all the way up and above 80. And so the program's design is a multi-pronged strategy. We feel very strongly, my co-founder and I, that a single-pronged effect or strategy is, is not going to actually have an ability to make a difference in an obese population with a significant level of comorbidities, because it's not just the weight that's the issue. It's the physiological disruption inside the body that predisposes the development and progression of all these different linked diseases. 
And the link really is that chronic inflammation. And if you can address those few underlying physiological processes, you can make a big impact on everything that sits above it. So that was our goal back in 2013, 14, when we were putting together the program, we knew we needed to have something that had a nutritional component. We knew we needed to have a neuroscience component and we needed to have a behavioral component. And neuroscience and behavioral are not the same things here. Because what we know is yes, food is related, particularly the predominance of ultra processed foods that are not providing the nutrition that the foods did maybe 30 years ago, but also the neuroscience. So the homeostatic eating controls and a part of the brain called the hypothalamus very significantly regulate hunger and satiety and hormone levels and all these things. And that's very different from behavior, eating behavior. Those types of things can be adjusted pretty, pretty well if you develop new habits. So the program is long enough to instill new habits while addressing and resetting a lot of those neurophysiological processes. And the whole goal is to reset along with the reduction, again, going back to that visceral fat. And the visceral fat here is a huge crucial factor in our opinion. And in weight loss in general, we feel it really should be the primary outcome because there's a lot of things you can do to lose weight. And many of them, almost none of them will actually significantly affect visceral fat, which is very different than the fat you see when you look in the mirror on the arms and legs. It's very deep. It's actually considered an endocrine organ. It drives a huge amount of pro-inflammatory cytokines and adipokines. And this particular type of fat is one that unless you make a big dent in it, of course, you want to reduce the expression of these pro-inflammatory molecules so that you can then let the body recover from the chronic inflammation that occurs. And then that healing allows those rhythms to be reestablished, to reestablish the behaviors of eating in the right manner, the right portion size without constantly being hungry. So it's kind of like this feedback loop and you need to interact with the loop in multiple different places to provide the outcomes that reduce visceral fat in a big enough way where you see things like reduction of need for medications, quality of life improvements, reduced aches and pains, those types of things that you don't really recognize with more of a commercial weight loss program. You know, Jessica, we've been talking a lot on our show over the last couple of years about telehealth, especially during the pandemic. We saw a, a huge uptick in, you know, telehealth utilization. And it's such an important aspect of value-based care delivery. And I'd love to get your thoughts on how virtual care can be utilized, especially in this post-pandemic era, to improve health equity. 20 lighter, it's a, a really unique comprehensive cardiometabolic telehealth program. And as I understand, it's delivered virtually over two months via smartphone. And the program incorporates patented treatment algorithms, providing a personalized approach to better cardiovascular and metabolic health, a multimodal approach that enables patients to achieve clinically meaningful improvements of visceral adiposity and chronic inflammation, blood pressure, hemoglobin A1C, blood lipids, in CVD risk and health. So I wanted to ask you, you know, what makes your program a particularly good fit for patients with CVD in rural communities? And given the widespread adoption of telehealth that we've seen during the pandemic, is this a solution that can be scaled 
to other rural communities to improve CVD and other chronic disease outcomes? Sure, that's a great question. So to circle back, the, the telehealth, the mobile health delivery of our program really enables the outcomes. We are able to literally engage in a meaningful way without a disruption in their normal lifestyle, individuals every day, whether that's in the morning or in the afternoon or in the evening. We don't rely on self-reported outcomes. All of our participants get a Bluetooth body composition scale. Those metrics automatically upload into the system where the participant and our dedicated 20-lighter healthcare providers can see them. That data is so critical, I can't underscore this. Because as you mentioned, it is literally a personalized precision medicine program. And that data, the metrics that we see, the changes in intracellular fluid and body fat and body weight, all of those different changes indicate to us what's going on inside the body and allow us to go back and give feedback to the participants about how to adjust for different things that happen. And some of these are different in rural areas than in urban and suburban areas. And I can talk a little bit about that as well. But it's the way that we are able to manage these folks with multiple significant chronic conditions, all the way to those that are more about improving health. And this telehealth engagement, and it's been, again, a cutting edge sword, I, I think both ways, COVID was really helpful in that it allowed people to finally accept the value of telehealth. But I think it's also something that needs to be a little bit more than just related to COVID, right? It's not just to avoid going in to the actual uh, healthcare facility, but it's a way to heighten the engagement and the communication between the healthcare provider and the individual so that you're getting a good understanding of what's going on at that time and you can provide the feedback that they need to make progress. So as we look into how this can be scaled, absolutely, our program is one that we literally cut our teeth in the urban and suburban population. So we know that this intervention works there. And now we have the data that suggests that in rural populations, the same type of intervention is effective. By virtue of our platform and the ability of our, our health workers, our, our healthcare providers that are in our staff, the ability for an individual on our staff to work with 60 or 80 patients on a program at any given time allows pretty good scaling. And so again, it's where this tech plus touch comes in that it is a lot more scalable than a regular healthcare service but yet still providing with all of those data metrics right in front of both the individual and the healthcare provider, not skimping on care or losing any opportunity to really keep that personalized engagement. Jessica Chip, I'd, I'd like to ask you both about the importance of improving health literacy as we're thinking about these important concepts. And, and healthcare is so inherently complex and the information asymmetry between patients and providers often leads to patient frustration and disillusionment and poor adherence to care plans. When you think about suboptimal health literacy as an independent risk factor for poor health outcomes and, and including the increased risk of hospitalization, you know, patients with cardiovascular disease that have poor health literacy may have misconceptions about their disease and ineffective communication with their health professionals. And I would assume it would lead to unnecessary interventions, under-treatment, or poor adherence to their treatment plans. In your experience, how can a CHW holistic model 
of community outreach and the use of patient engagement technologies and telehealth help us better communicate with patients? And are you seeing it improve health literacy? Yes, absolutely. We are blessed at UAMS to have a very strong Center for Health Literacy that reviews and evaluates and edits all of our scripts we use for the community health worker and all of the data collection tools. So we're able to avoid some major traps as in the healthcare industry speaks in its own language. And that doesn't necessarily communicate what we intend to. There's a few studies out there showing that there's only about 30% uptake of a physician visit in a clinic. Well, we have the baseline communication that has been edited by the Center for Health Literacy. So we are communicating, I think, at a 80% level or somewhere in that range. Also, back to the telehealth intervention, specifically for the inter- for the community health workers, we have it set up where it's a bi-directional communication. So a community health worker can engage and contact their client over the UAMS e-link system, which is the telemedicine system of the university. And also, they can be present if the client is, is communicating with a provider at UAMS. So uh, it's twofold. One, it expands the number of clients where a community health worker can manage. And two, it helps the patient understand you know, what is the expectations, what is the plan of care when they speak with a, with a provider. Also, I think it's important to, to point out, there's statistics that show that the average reading level in Phillips County is fourth grade, fourth grade. So even when we were starting to go into this population, we had to adjust the way that we would explain these more complex topics. Like we're talking about visceral adiposity and, and the way that your brain works. And in order for us to communicate, we had to change from visceral adiposity to the steak that you get at the grocery store. You've got the marbling on the inside, that's the visceral fat. You've got the fat around the edge that you trim, that's the subcutaneous fat. They do very different things. I mean, it just takes a little bit of time and creativity to find a way to, again, connect with people. And then when you see it and the, oh, oh yeah, I know what you mean. It really brings that next level of communication and it just goes in building this trust. They really want me to understand. They're not just lecturing. This is something that I can go and talk about at the dinner table. Guess what I learned today? We've got feedback that that happens as well. So again, fourth grade level, and it's, it's a lot lower than I was expecting, but the opportunity there is to, to be creative and to show these folks that you really care by talking on a level in a way that makes them feel comfortable without feeling talked down to. Well, Jessica and Chip, I, I've really enjoyed our conversation today, and I'm truly inspired. I mean, you're making a difference in the Arkansas Delta region, and there's so much potential here to replicate this population health model and this unique partnership to scale it across all of rural America. But what I really liked most about what you said earlier, too, was this the importance of building trust with the healthcare system and how that's seemingly missing in the current environment with the community of patients and, and their, their health system. 
So I, I guess with that kind of context, I wanted to ask you kind of where you see things going for the future, you know, and I'm thinking about the future of the overall movement to value-based care. Are we going to see in the years to come more widespread adoption of community-based lay health worker care models and and maybe even integration of lifestyle medicine in the primary care setting? Are we going to see perhaps technology create more enablement beyond our imagination to improve population health outcomes at scale? You know, I'd love to get your parting comments just on your optimism, if, if you have optimism for the future of, of our healthcare industry and as we realign incentives and as a country, we're trying to contend with some of the, the grim statistics and massive health inequities that we see. Will the future of healthcare, will trust be this new currency of the patient and provider relationships in the future? I'd love to get your parting thoughts on where you see the you know things going in the future. So that's a great question. And, and I've spent 20 years in for-profit healthcare management roles, and it became apparent as we began to look at the rural communities, fee-for-service healthcare created a shadow population, and they were usually underserved minorities, social isolation that were either unable or unwilling to do something to involve themselves in healthcare. We were asking people to patient activate that were incapable of doing so. They were more worried about uh, finding enough food for their family for dinner tonight. So as we move, and the movement is going to be, I believe, very swift, as we move to value-based care, capitated programs, then the link and the work that we're doing with Jess and our other collaborators becomes very critical because fee-for-service, you're driving patients through the hospital system, and that's what keeps the door open. And in capitation, you want to manage that patient in the home, in the community, as long as absolutely as you absolutely can. And so I think you see as capitation programs become predominant in the rural south, you'll see Lincoln Project-type operations spring up that are trying to deal with prevention and intervention in the community prior to becoming an acute case and needing a transport and ambulance to a medical facility. And I think it also starts to become more about what you can do for the patient, not how many patients you can see or how many patients you can push through the office. It's about the improvement, health, quality of life, that you're able to help that patient achieve. And that's that's what we've been focused on for the past few years is establishing the outcomes that set us aside from others in the industry. Our particular industry has a horrible reputation, weight loss, and I'm using air quotes with that, because there are a lot of things that do a good job of draining people's wallets, including the insurers, and really don't make any tangible improvements in health. And we are really trying to change the way people think about that. That's why our program is a cardiometabolic health program, not a weight loss program. We want to change health. We want to improve risk and improve outcomes and quality of life. And it's sometimes an uphill battle, but we're starting to find more and more people that value the outcomes and understand that in the future, that's really the way that the insurers and the key stakeholders, employers, and, and the whole the whole horizon are going to be focused on putting their dollars and their efforts and their support behind. 
Well, Jessica and Chip, I, I wanted to thank you both again for joining us this week. I mean, you're doing such great work and addressing cardiovascular health disparities in this rural underserved community in Arkansas. We've really been looking forward to this discussion and I feel like we've learned so much today and hopefully we could have you both on in the future to revisit and, and see how much success you've had. So the invitation's always open. And again, thank you so much for joining us this week on the podcast. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Eric and Daniel.